I'm Tom Donnelly, Senior Fellow for Constitutional Studies at the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. On today's show, we're going to take a close look at the Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity. Established by executive order in May, the commission is charged with studying the registration and voting processes used in federal elections and will ultimately submit a report to President Trump documenting its findings and recommendations. In the midst of intense blowback from state officials and multiple lawsuits from public interest groups, the commission held its first public meeting this week with the promise of more to come. Who are the members of this commission? What's its agenda? Is there merit to the criticism of the commission so far? And how should we think generally about the federal government's role in the administration of state elections? Joining me to discuss are two leading voting rights scholars who also wrote about the 24th Amendment for the National Constitution Center's interactive constitution. Deborah Archer is professor of law, co-director of the Impact Center for Public Interest Law, and director of the Racial Justice Project at New York Law School. Derek Muller is associate professor of law at the Pepperdine University School of Law. Deborah, Derek, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Excellent. So, Derek, let's let's begin with you, and I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page uh, about this commission. Can you just tell us a little bit about where President Trump's Advisory Commission on Election uh, Integrity came from, what its goal is, and 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 sort of who's serving on it so far? Sure. So, I think uh, you know, after every election, everyone uh, kind of looks back and takes stock about what happened, and there's often frustration with the results at times, and. Uh, oftentimes, especially after uh, the very close election in 2000 with Bush versus Gore, um, with long lines at the polls in, uh, in 2012, uh, there have been times where presidents have convened sort of election commissions to address some of the concerns that arose out of the previous election. Um, so Donald Trump uh, has... Uh, I think pretty vociferously insisted that there were a number of illegal votes cast and insisted that he believes he won the popular vote, uh, despite the fact that uh, Hillary Clinton won by probably more than three million votes. Uh, he won the Electoral College. So there is a little bit of a dispute about, uh, at least from his perspective, about the validity of the results and about the reliability and integrity of the election. So he issued this executive order uh, to create a commission and uh, I'll just address a couple of brief sort of overview points. One is that he named uh, Mike Pence as vice president as the uh, chair of the commission. Uh, that's a little bit unusual. The last few presidential commissions have sort of had two co-chairs, one from uh, each party. Uh, so the last one, for instance, had uh, Bob Bauer and uh, ben Ginsburg, who were uh, Republican and Democratic attorneys for uh, President Obama and Governor Romney. And then he also named the vice chair as Chris Kobach, who's a Republican secretary of state in Kansas. Um, the commission is made up of a number of uh, election officials, some secretaries of state, some uh, local clerks or judges or other officials, um, and a couple of practitioners who are examining the uh, integrity of our voting systems. Excellent. Thanks so much for that, Derek. And, and Deborah, can you just talk a little bit about uh, the the uh, anything you'd like to add about the the, the uh, commission's agenda, um, and also just more generally, how should we think about this commission in the context of some of those previous presidential commissions that Derek just mentioned? Where does it uh, sort of uh, a, a, a fit? How do we think through that? Well, I'll start with the second portion of your question about uh, where the membership of the this commission fits in contrast to. Um, previous commissions, and uh, Derek mentioned President Obama's 
2013 uh, Presidential Commission on Election Administration. And one of the concerns that folks have about the current commission is that it's not truly a bipartisan commission. And they think that that really comes to light when you contrast it to President Obama's commission. As Derek mentioned, that commission was co-chaired by um, a Democrat and Republican. It also had um, equal numbers of uh, Democrats and Republicans. It had membership from both parties that represented diverse viewpoints. It was staffed by experts in the field. And I think that their process that they followed in investigating these actual voting issues that came up um, were that they were very transparent. Their meetings were public. Their process was public. Um, and the outcome was public. So the what was wonderful about Obama's commission, many would say, is what they're concerned about with uh, President Trump's uh, commission. No, that, that that's extremely helpful. And and so, Derek, please feel free to you know re respond to any of that. But also, can you give us a sense of what what's the commission done so far, and you know what sort of what actions, what's its scope of action uh, down the road? Sure. So it has a pretty uh, broad mandate in the sense that uh, the executive order says that it's looking at uh, advising and submitting a report to the president on practices that would enhance uh, American confidence in the integrity of voting processes, uh, the kinds of rules or practices that might undermine that confidence and vulnerabilities in voting systems and practices for elections that can lead to improper registration, improper voting, including uh, fraud. So it has a pretty broad mandate. And so I think there's a question about where the commission will go in terms of following through with that mandate. Um, so we've seen a, a little bit of activity so far. So they had a teleconference a few weeks ago. Um, and after, as a result of that, uh, Vice Chair Chris Kobach sent out a letter to a number of states uh, soliciting them to submit uh, a, a number of pieces of information regarding their voter uh, registration databases about who's registered to vote and uh, any personally identifiable information about them, such as their residence. Uh, some more controversial pieces, shall we say, including potentially the last four digits of their social security number, if publicly available. Um, that uh, push uh, brushed back, or there was some pushback from some, uh, from most jurisdictions about providing some or all of this information. Uh, but many states are going to provide at least some of that to the commission. And this is a way for the commission to look and examine uh, the registration practices in the states. Um, and then they had a meeting on Wednesday, which was, you know, it was, uh, it was broadcast, but it was not uh, a meeting for public comment. Uh, I think future meetings will, will probably have that. I, I believe previous commissions, sometimes their sort of first introductory meeting isn't open to the public. Um, but in the future, I, I, I hope there will be more uh, opportunities for public comment. And uh, this was sort of a, a fairly general get to know you session among the commissioners where I think uh, many were expressing concerns uh, about uh, the reliability and confidence in the electoral process while at the same time uh, saying that they would keep an open mind about wherever the evidence would lead them. But um, so far, a lot of the focus seems to be on voter registration and potentially duplicative registrations and uh, double voting uh, from individuals, which I think much of the evidence suggests that's very rare. Um, so I think it's a question of uh, what, how diligent the commission will be and what kinds of findings it'll come up with. Thanks. For, I, oh, sure. Uh, yes, no problem. But, uh, please, Deborah. Uh, Derek makes a, a several uh, good points, and I'm glad he highlighted the language um, 
of the mission of this commission. And one point of it is to focus, as he said, on vulnerabilities in um, voting systems that could lead to fraud and also looking at how to shore up um, our election system generally. But as he mentioned, the focus really just has been on registration and the issue of registration. So election experts are uh, concerned that the commission is going to highlight isolated incidents of fraud, which, as he said, constitute a really a tiny fraction of ballots cast as a justification. People are concerned to recommend suppressive laws at the, the state and um, federal level. And the commission's origins coming really from President Trump's claims that there were over three million illegal votes cast, um, apparently all for Hillary Clinton. So concerned about the origin, the membership of the committee, of the commission, uh, and really what the true mission is, it's raised red flags that it will not, at the end of the day, produce an impartial study of election procedures. And instead, we'll try to validate the president's voter fraud claims, which have been um, repeatedly disproven. And so, Deborah, if, if, if the, the commission at this point is the subject of uh, a, a few different uh, lawsuits, uh, which touch on some of the, the items that you just mentioned, can you just place on the table sort of the, 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 the range of legal arguments that are being laid out uh, in court vis-a-vis uh, -vis the commission? And, you know, any preliminary thoughts you have about which, how we sort through which ones may have relatively more or relatively less merit? Well, I actually, uh, there actually, I think have been around 10, and I'm sure Derek can correct me or add to this list. At least two concern personnel issues. I believe there are three that concern um, state law prohibitions on providing the data requested. Um, I think there are three that concern procedural issues around um, the commission, how it's going to function and its transparency. One concerns the commission's ability to collect information related to uh, First Amendment activity, including voting. And one concerns allegations of intentional racial discrimination. So to go a little deeper into those, um, starting with the one I mentioned last first, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund filed litigation alleging that there, there was an intentionally discriminatory intent behind this commission and that it's going to lead to efforts that will disproportionately disenfranchise um, people of color. The Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights filed a claim under the Hatch Act, which essentially is saying that Mr. Kobach is using the commission to further his personal uh, campaign. And this is certainly an issue that can arise when you have someone who is running for um, office at the same time that he's asked to take on this kind of very public role. There is a complaint to the Election Assistance Commission. There's a, a rule that members of the Election Assistance Commission cannot engage in other business while they're members of the EAC, and one of the members of the commission is also a member of the EAC. And then there's the Brennan Center and others who have filed complaint. Um, one is the Brennan Center's complaint is against Connie Lawson to prevent her from releasing state voter data that they argue is prohibited under Indiana law. Indiana law has very specific limitations on what information can be released and who it can be released to. And the Brennan Center argues um, that the commission is not one of those entities and their purpose is not one of the purposes that justifies release of this uh, information under state law. Um, the ACLU's litigation has gotten a lot of attention and they're alleging that the commission is failing to comply with federal transparency laws um, requiring what information is made available to the public, having public access to 
the documents, having public uh, access to the meetings, being notified of the meetings. Um, and that one has had, I think, a little traction, as we've seen three days after the lawsuit was filed, the White House did put up a web page that contained some limited information, and there were some um, provisions made for folks to participate in Wednesday's meeting uh, via live stream. Um, and then there's the uh, Electronic Privacy Information Center that's alleging that there were precautions, uh, requirements that should have been taken before the federal government engaged in any activity that might impinge on privacy rights, and that includes conducting a privacy impact study. And then finally, I'll mention that there was um, several folks who filed litigation about what information governments can collect related to First Amendment protected activity. And here, the concerns are about um, the commission's request to get uh, voter history and party affiliation. And I think that that covers um, uh, the list. No, that's that that it's terrific placing all those uh, those issues on the table. And I, I want to turn it over to Derek to, um, you know, if, if, if we think through these different lines of lawsuits, we have, you know, the different claims pertaining to transparency, uh, the personnel on the commission, data privacy, the LDFs um, lawsuit uh, um, alleging discrimination, um, some lawsuits based on the procedures that the commission has followed. Uh, uh, what, what, how, how do you think through um, the, the, the merits of these various claims? Are there particular claims that have relatively less merit or are there some that have, you know, stronger force? Uh, I'm curious to hear, Derek, how, how, you, how you think through uh, this range of lawsuits. It's, uh, I think we're in some, something of an interesting time where it, it feels like almost anything the Trump administration does results in a bevy of lawsuits filed against it. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of uh, publicity around a lot of lawsuits, but I, I think there's probably some varying degrees of uh, merit to these claims. I, I do think, though, to highlight probably the most serious are some of the privacy issues uh, regarding the collection and dissemination of the data. Um, there was a suggestion in the original letter uh, from Vice Chair Kobach that uh, that the states were supposed to share this publicly available information with the commission and then the, the, they should be on notice that the commission will make it publicly available uh, to the public so that the public can sort of reach its own conclusions and uh, judge for itself uh, what, what it derives from the data. Uh, it's worth noting that under federal law, some of this information is available for public inspection. There are certain voter registration records that you can get access to in just about every state. Um, there are some limitations about the use of it. Sometimes you have to uh, uh, pay for it and things like that. Um, but, uh, but some of this information is available. Uh, not, not all of it. And I think that's where information such as regarding social security numbers and the like is not available under most of any state's laws. And that's where some of, I think, the, the, the most uh, prevalent lawsuits are going to are gonna succeed. Uh, for some of the other claims, I think it's a challenge. You know, I think uh, I, I'm, my, my mind is blanking on which one of these had, had an early motion that was uh, denied uh, early in the litigation process to try to stop something that the commission was doing. Um, but I think one of the keys here is the commission has, uh, you know, moved pretty quickly. It's uh, it was soliciting information before it had its first sort of public meeting. Uh, it was sort of saying that it was uh, reserving judgment on reaching conclusions while at the same time already soliciting information at the outset, suggesting that it was reaching some conclusions. Um, so I think, you know, if the commission slows down a bit, if there's the public feedback component that 
this commission will have uh, that affects its judgment in the future. We'll see what happens as a result of it. But um, I think a lot has been uh, a kind of slow down take your time, take the kinds of requirements that are necessary under law, including the disclosure of the identities of individuals who are on the commission and a website and all those kinds of things. Um, so we'll see where it leads in the future. But I do think the data privacy is probably the biggest concern uh, of all the lawsuits, in my view. Thank you for that, Derek. And, and Deborah, sort of same question to you now that all of these claims are on the table. Are there, are there claims that you think are, are particularly uh, strong or, or any that are, are, are relatively weaker? Well, I, I think Derek was... Um hit the nail on the head when he said that they they move pretty quickly. And I think some of what we're seeing is that um, it appears the commission didn't really stop and thoroughly think through some of what it's doing, what data they need, why they need it, how they're going to protect privacy. But even more um, and critical to me is how they're going to protect the right to vote uh, during this process and as a result of this process, and how not to disparately impact uh, my minority voters. And so there certainly have been issues raised in these lawsuits, but there's also concerns kind of floating around out there around what the what the commission is is going to is going to do. And for many, the most important concern is that they're going to um, take isolated incidents of people voting, re registering twice or being registered in two different states, take those isolated incidents to claim widespread voter fraud, and then use that to justify unwarranted uh, voting restrictions that will impact the ability of eligible voters to participate in our political process. And this is gonna be done at a time when many people think we should be doing more to make voting more accessible um, rather than making it less accessible. And also at a time when we see courts and, and others identifying um, voting procedures and practices being put in place that either they found to be intentionally discriminatory against minority voters or that have the impact of discouraging participation of minority voters. So I, I, I think the concerns around what the commission is going to do with that information and the impact that that is going to have on, on voting around the country is of concern. More, even more specifically, some may be concerned that there will be attempts to um, uh, federalized suppressive laws that currently exist in some states like strict voter ID and um, documentary proof of citizenship requirements, or that they'll pressure other states to adopt similarly restrictive voting laws. And as I said, these are laws that are often trumpeted as anti-fraud measures, but in reality just make it harder for eligible citizens to, to vote and participate in the political process. Well, thank you so much for that, Deborah. And and turning to you, Derek, th you know, thinking through some of the the issues that Deborah placed on the table there, I, I I'd love to get your thoughts on you know if we think of the 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 the, the Constitution's broader framework and voting and the distribution of power between and responsibilities between the federal government and the states, and project forward as to what the commission may lead to, uh, how how much flex how much flexibility does Congress and or the president have to um, uh, pass some sort of federal policy on something like voter ID or proof of citizenship for registration or or even, you know, uh, other mechanisms for uh, trying to get states to follow its preferred policies. What is what's what, what what's sort of possible and how do we think through that analysis? Sure. Uh, so the Constitution has a, a uh, somewhat flexible standard, at least. Um, Congress can regulate the time, place and manner of congressional elections uh, as it sees fit. 
uh, it can supersede states in that area uh, if it so desires. But it, it, it's a little bit more complicated to regulate state elections at the federal level because those are pretty much reserved to the states. Um, sort of the most significant power is to regulate under the Reconstruction Amendments, particularly uh, to prevent the right to vote uh, from being abridged to any person on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So there are some opportunities for Congress to act. Um, Congress has been pretty reluctant, I think, over the over uh, American history, really, to intervene too much in the electoral process. So the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is obviously a major and significant piece of legislation affecting federal and state elections, uh, particularly regarding uh, the ability of minorities and minority language groups to participate in the electoral process. Um, a couple of other ones are the National Voter Registration Act of 1993 or Motor Voter uh, that broadens some voter registration opportunities at um, local uh, departments of motor vehicles and the Help America Vote Act of 2002, which tried to update some uh, of the registration processes in the states to provide some funding for updating some voting machines, things like that. Um, so there have been a couple of sort of moves into that area where the federal government has stepped in. Um, the court has sort of recognized that there might be some limitations to this. That uh, That is, when it comes to the um, the uh, qualifications of who has the right to vote, that's pretty much left to the states. And th there has been a fight about when it comes to voter registration or proof of citizenship, is this really about a voter qualification? Is this enforcing sort of the, the right, the, the manner to vote? There's a little bit of a question about the proper scope of authority between the federal and state governments in this area. But all, all that is to say, you know, I, I, I may be a little bit more uh, skeptical than Deborah is about what the federal government is going to do in this area as a result of anything that the commission says. Um, I think Congress has historically had very little appetite for intervening in the states uh, on these elections uh, matters. Uh, and I, th I think there's not necessarily going to be the political will for whatever the commission comes out with, um, particularly in the United States Senate. Um, so I think there's definitely some uncertainty about what might happen in terms of the commission's recommendations and, and how people uh, perceive it. But I, 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 it's at least my uh, judgment sure to be a prediction sure to go wrong that I, I think there's a pretty low likelihood that the federal government actually would enact a law as a result uh, of the findings of the commission. Well, thank you for that, Derek. And, and Deborah, I'd love to hear, you know, uh, your your analysis in terms of, you know, the general framework and scope of authority that the federal government has in this realm. And then just your thoughts if, you know, we projected ahead and, and Congress did push for something like a national voter ID law, what sort of arguments there might be on, on for either its constitutionality or, or unconstitutionality? I think Derek's absolutely uh, correct on his assessment of the ability of federal government to intervene and also... Uh, on the political will of Congress, perhaps, to um, to take action. But I think that that's not uh, where our primary concern is. For some of the states that have enacted, tried to enact strict voter ID laws that have been challenged and other kind of pull back on other measures that make it easier to vote and, and have claimed voter fraud as the basis for doing that, the, the roadblock that they have hit in court is that there's no evidence of um, of widespread voter fraud. In fact, all the evidence points to the direction that it's an incredibly rare or, or non-existent. And so what the commission can do is provide a foundation for those states to move forward with voter ID laws and uh, similar laws, and then point to 
um, the work of the commission as evidence that there is there is a voter fraud problem and states need to act. And certainly the federal government can um, facilitate and assist uh, and encourage states to act to respond to any findings of voter fraud uh, by this commission. So the commission doesn't have a lot of authority to act and Congress may not have the will to act. I think the Department of Justice, the Civil Rights Division within the Department of Justice has both the authority and um, will to act. And a, a concern is that based on the work of the commission, the Civil Rights Division will turn away from making sure and individuals to vote and participate in our political process and instead turn their attention uh, to focus on um, states purging their, their voting rolls and other methods that they will argue are attempts to combat, um, combat the fraud. I also, just in terms of specific federal legislation, um, Derek mentioned the National Voter Registration Act. And given the makeup of the commission, I think people should be concerned about attempts to amend or undermine at least undermine uh, that act. Mr. Kobach in particular was found by a federal appellate court to have uh, disenfranchised thousands of people who registered to vote when they renewed their driver's license under the National Voter Registration Act. And there, that, there was that widely shared picture where he was uh, meeting with Mr. Trump early on in the presidency and part of his document was shown and you could see that it said national voter and it was, uh, many people believed, a roadmap to amending the National Voter Registration Act. So I think that that is something that people should be concerned about as well. Thank you for that, Deborah. And, and Derek, we, we, we've talked a bit here about the authority of the federal government in this realm. What 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 scope of uh, what flexibility do states have, though, to address? Suppose the, the commission finds um, some instances of, of of voter fraud or concerns about voter registration. Um, how 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 much flexibility do the states have? And are there any um, constitutional barriers for things like um, uh, you know restricted voter ID laws or registration laws or anything along those lines? Yeah, so states have a lot of flexibility to act um, subject to, uh, well, first, their own constitutions. <laughs> some of the states have some uh, pretty significant restrictions about what the legislature can or can't do uh, when it comes to uh, changing the right to vote or uh, placing burdens or hurdles in place for people or extra steps in the process. Um, but but that hasn't been the focus of a lot of uh, litigation recently. So a lot of states have changed a whole variety of their uh, election procedures over you know in just the last decade. Whether it's moving toward automatic voter registration, whether it's uh, increasingly online voter registration, to steps including uh, vote by mail uh, elections, increased early voting, uh, polling places that have been consolidated into voting centers to voter ID laws, whether they're photo ID or non-photo ID or whatever they might be. So there's been a suite of changes that uh, states are constantly uh, improvising and they're editing and amending their their statutes. Um, I think people of uh, good faith have, have good disagreements about whether or not they particularly like or, or dislike those changes. Um, the, the the I would say there are um, two major areas for litigation challenges to what states do. Um, one of those is the Voting Rights Act. Uh, so a corollary with that to that would be uh, subject to the 15th Amendment. But really, the Voting Rights Act says that if there are changes to voting laws that uh, 
provide for less opportunity for a minority group to participate in the political process, or if it's found that the law is intentionally discriminatory against a minority group, uh, then that law runs afoul of the Voting Rights Act. So there has been uh, some pretty robust challenges in a number of states recently uh, on some of those matters, uh, some of them more successful than others, uh, but that's one of the major areas. Um, and another is something known as the sort of verdict balancing test, or there are a series of cases from the Supreme Court that have identified that there is this right of voters and candidates to associate with one another, this freedom of association. And the courts have said that that's a protected constitutional right and that if states place burdens on that, uh, the courts have to scrutinize those burdens. And if it's a slight burden, then the state's ordinary uh, sort of justification for why it enacts any kind of a law is, is legitimate and, the, and the, the law is valid and passes judicial scrutiny. But if you place a substantial burden on that right to vote, uh, this is from a case called Burdick versus Takushi in 1992 out of Hawaii. Uh, if you place a substantial burden on that right to vote, then you need some more persuasive justifications uh, in order for that uh, burden to be placed on voters. Um, and it's much more difficult for the state legislature's law to be upheld. Um, so states are constantly trying to come up with laws that are not too burdensome or that at least they can persuade a court is not too burdensome to the voters. Because, I mean, every change to a voting law affects some group of people. And so this is the, the, the balancing test that the courts and the legislatures are going through right now. Thank you for that, Derek. And so, Deborah, if, if we're thinking through, you know, f- future challenges to um, state measures like voter ID laws. What do you take to be, you know, some of the some of the strongest constitutional arguments for for those challengers? Well, I, I think with the Derek mentioned the Voting Rights Act and Section Two of the Voting Rights Act, and with some of these changes that really do have a disparate impact on uh, communities of color, I think that there are viable challenges um, under Section Two of the Voting Rights Act to them as well. And in some states like North Carolina, where uh, the court found, uh, you know, a, a ton of evidence that it was intentionally discriminatory. I think we have constitutional options there. So we sh- certainly should not ignore um, options that require intent, of discrim- uh, intent to discriminate because folks have been um, more free in voicing concerns uh, that may support claims of intentional discrimination. But Derek also mentioned um, some of the efforts that states have enacted to make it easier to vote. And I think that those are are things that people should be focused on as well. Automatic registration or expanding early voting, same day registration. I think those are things that this commission should focus on under um, the, the category of vulnerabilities in our system that make it difficult for pe- people to participate. And certainly we've seen uh, greater participation rates, greater turnout rates when we expand the ways that people can participate in our political process. And I also think that the commission could be helpful to states as they administer our voting um, system to to really look into ways to help us update our old voting system, which I think presents lots of vulnerabilities. Uh, It's been at least 15 years since there have been major efforts at modernization. And um, I think that that is an area where the commission really should be focusing more time than looking into uh, claims of voter fraud. 
Thanks for that, Deborah. And and Derek, if we if we think about this this area of case law, has has the Supreme Court provided us with any indications of how, if it, if it ends up taking one of these cases, um, it may go about analyzing it, say on a, a voter ID law or um, um, some sort of voter registration or um, uh, any issue along those lines? Yeah, they have sort of um, moved into this area in a couple of different. Uh, uh, major cases. So one is uh, a case called Crawford versus Marion County, Indiana, which concerned Indiana's voter identification law. And that was a, a case from the court where they examined sort of under this uh, this burdick balancing test, sort of the substantiality of the burden in the court said, at least on the facts of Indiana's voter identification law, uh, it wasn't a uh, terribly substantial burden on voters and the, the state sort of uh, interests in preventing fraud and uh, making sure that its voter rolls were up to date and uh, all those kinds of things were sort of sufficient to pass muster. So I think a lot of people uh, have cited that case as sort of a defense of voter ID laws. At the same time, uh, there have been many who have pointed out that if uh, voter ID laws are more restrictive or if they're able to point to more evidence in the record about the difficulty of getting access to those uh, identification cards or to the underlying documents required to get the identification card, then the courts might come out differently. And in fact, in some jurisdictions, they have come out differently and distinguished it. Um, another major area has been about how to examine uh, voter registration and, and the proper role of uh, registration in terms of federal versus state authority. So some states like Arizona have instituted voter registration policies that required proof of citizenship. Um, and the federal courts have said, well, we have some of these federal laws that talk about voter registration. Um, at the same time, Arizona wants to make sure that citizens are voting and there has to be some ability for the state of Arizona to examine whether or not when it's registering voters that these are actually citizens and not non-citizens. Um, and the courts sort of punted in this area in one regard that they said, well, you need to go back and sort of uh, go, go through some extra steps before you can do this. But uh, but, but for the most part, the question of enforcing qualifications is a matter left to the states. Maybe there might be less of a role for the federal government or uh, for the federal constitution, in fact, uh, to, to handle those matters. So there have been a couple of these uh, cases that have come up before the courts, um, but it, it's still sort of a little bit of an open question in some of these areas. We haven't seen um, the kinds of records that maybe people who are concerned about voter IDs would like. Uh, we also haven't seen sort of some of the clamping down on voter registration efforts that I think some have, have feared. There's been, a, for instance, a really significant broadening of online voter registration in the last decade. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I just saw that today we have, we're up to nine states that have done automatic voter registration. So there are uh, definitely sort of ebbs and flows in this area. And it's a, it's a, it's a dynamic and ever changing uh, set of laws that uh, we'll see. We'll see what the next round of litigation might bring. Thanks for that, Derek. And Deborah, I'd, l I'd love your thoughts on uh, the Supreme Court case law in this area, but also, you know, what we might, for us court watchers, uh, what we might learn from next term's case, Husted uh, versus A. Philip Randolph Institute, the Ohio uh, voter rolls case, whether or not, you know, what, what, maybe talk a little bit about uh, that case and what we may also be able to learn from the court uh, through that challenge. Absolutely. I, I, I want to point out that uh, Derek said uh, that we've seen a broadening of means to access um, the electoral process. And I think that's right. And I think that that's great. But that is balanced against other states, I think, that are still taking very restrictive uh, approaches to who can vote, how can they vote, how they register. An example um, is in uh, Texas, for example, that still 
has on its books very restrictive uh, rules around voter registration that makes it virtually impossible for community organizations to engage in voter registration drives. And so we have to look very broadly at the types of laws that are at the same time that we're expanding access and doing online voter registration and same day registration. Um, we also have many states that are moving in opposite direction and really constricting the, the, the right of folks to um, access the ballot. In, in looking at the past Supreme Court cases, the only one that I will add to what Derek said was the Supreme Court's abortion access case that came out of um, Texas. And I think that that case is instructive um, in that the court said you have to look at the, the evidence, you have to have evidence to support the restrictions when you're impinging on a right. Um, and I think that the, a challenge here is whether or not um, the work of the commission will be seen as that 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 um, backup for very restrictive uh, laws. In terms of the Ohio case that you mentioned, um, Husted versus Ohio, a Philip Randolph Institute, uh, the court has agreed to hear that challenge next term. And that's a case coming out of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. And the Sixth Circuit there said that Ohio's process where uh, voters are purged from the role if he or she fails to vote um, in a two-year period, even if he or she did not move or otherwise remains um, eligible to vote, will be an interesting will be an interesting case. I, uh, certainly, people argue that people have a right not to vote, and I can register to vote and continue not to vote, and the state shouldn't take um, actions to remove me from the voter polls simply because I've exercised my right um, not to vote. But I think there, there are also concerns about disproportionate impact on communities of color. In one county in Ohio alone, approximately 40,000 individuals were purged um, based on this Ohio program for not exercising their right to, to vote. And a disproportionate number of those people came from low-income neighborhoods and communities of color. So it'll be interesting to see how the Supreme Court uh, treats those issues and how they balance that against, I think, a state's legitimate interest in managing its, its, its voter roles and making sure that those roles are accurate and up-to-date. So um, maybe the Supreme Court will offer some guidance on how states can balance the interest of voters and their rights, as well as the state's interest in maintaining voter, um, accurate voter rolls. Yeah, just to just to jump into what Deborah said there, I think it is a it is this important question of balance because we hear. Um, it, it, sometimes it's a question of rhetoric about whether or not it's a, a voter purge, or I think as many secretaries of state would prefer to use the term list maintenance, right? And all states have some form of list maintenance because it's really expensive if you're mailing out uh, notices to vote. So I live in California. We send out a thick booklet, sometimes over 200 pages, uh, identifying all of the various candidates, all the different offices, and all of the ballot initiatives on the ballot. And that can be very expensive for states if they're mailing these notices to people who are ineligible, who've moved, who aren't there. So every state, and federal law permits, right, that states have this list maintenance procedure. Um, but the question is sort of this careful balance in a state like Ohio. So Ohio, um, they have this process in place where they look for people who have moved, they send them a notice. If they didn't answer and don't vote for the next four years, they're off the list. Or in some counties, they were looking at whether or not you hadn't voted in two years, send you a notice. If you don't respond to the notice and haven't voted in four more years, then they take your name off the list. Um, so I think Deborah's right. This is a question of, you know, what's the proper 
proper process here? You know, at what point is enough inactivity enough before the state can take you out? How responsive do you have to be to those mailings from the state? Uh, it's going to be an interesting application of, of what the National Voter Registration Act permits or perhaps even requires of these states. Well, thank you for that, Derek. And and I, I really enjoyed this discussion of, of, of uh, you know, all the issues arising out of the commission and voting rights more broadly today. But before we end, I'd love to back up and talk a little bit about your, your joint contribution for the National Constitution Center's interactive constitution on the 24th Amendment. And I'd love to just, you know, beginning with you, Deborah, you know, thinking about the essay that you and Derek jointly authored, uh, you know, what, what would you want our listeners to know about the 24th Amendment, its text, its force, its story? Well, I, I think that we would hope that folks would realize that it, it was there and more relevant than um, we imagine. It, it is not, it, it, so it limits the ability to charge poll taxes, but I don't think we should interpret it that strictly. And we as a society need to look into uh, whether or not there are financial burdens impacting access uh, to the right to vote and whether or not those uh, are challengeable under the, the 24th Amendment. Again, certainly keeping in line with wanting to make sure that all eligible citizens have equal and fair access to the electoral process. I think the 24th Amendment is certainly certainly more relevant t today as we see at least arguments that voter ID laws, for example, that may require folks to expend um, money in order to obtain IDs, even if they're not um, directly charged for the IDs, but charge for underlying documents, that um, those types of laws may be in violation of the 24th Amendment. Well, thank you for that, Deborah. And Derek, say, same question to you. What would you want our listeners to know about the 24th Amendment's uh, text, its force, its story? Uh, what sort of lessons do you think lie uh, within that story? Yeah, sure, sure. First, let me just say it was, uh, it was great to work with Deborah on this, and it was uh, a lot of fun to think about the 24th Amendment. Uh, you know, abolishing poll taxes might not be at the front of our minds, but it took a lot of effort to pass a constitutional amendment to uh, prohibit them. Um, you know, what struck me and what I ended up uh, sort of focusing on, on, on my separate essay was um, you know, this is a it's a big deal to amend the Constitution, right? It takes a lot of effort. Um, and by the time it was enacted, there were just five states that had poll taxes left. So why did we have to go through this this rigorous constitutional amendment process, getting two thirds of Congress and three quarters of the states? Um, you know, why isn't there just something in the in the Constitution that would have allowed Congress to step in and do this? And it's sort of a complicated story about the the federalism patchwork we have in the United States that elections are governed um, differently at the federal level than they are at the state level. They're actually covering differently depending on whether it's a congressional office or whether it's uh, the presidential election. Uh, there are some real challenges about passing laws regarding elections. So uh, one of the things when Congress does these laws, like the National Voter Registration Act or the Help America Vote Act, um, they're hoping that there's going to be a little bit of what you might call hydraulic pressure, right? That when it passes a law regarding federal elections, the states will say, well, we'll just do the same kind of thing for our state elections because it's too complicated to run elections sort of side by side. Um, and in fact, when we passed the 24th Amendment, it only abolished poll taxes in federal elections. And the hope was that that would maybe prevent states from doing so in state elections, too. Um, that didn't happen. And there had to be some later litigation before the Supreme Court about that issue. But uh, it was just an interesting, I think, dynamic story about how we uh, regulate elections at the federal level and then sort of some of the limitations that Congress uh, has in regulating something as simple as a poll tax in five states uh, and, and what that meant. 
Well, thank you so much for that, Derek. And at, at this point, I'd, I'd love to uh, give you some time for some closing arguments, and I'm going to ask you both the same question. And it's, it's, it's a fairly broad one, but it goes back to constitutional fundamentals. And I'll, I'll start with you, Deborah. And it's just sort of the big question of thinking about our constitutional system. What do you think is the proper role of the federal government in this election slash voting context? Historically, the federal government has been a, a, a source of protection for people who have been pushed out of the electoral process, who have been disenfranchised and preventing from exercising their right to vote. So I certainly respect and, and, and hope that the federal government will continue to play that role of protecting the right to, invote, right to vote and ensuring access. We are facing some challenges, and we have to acknowledge that and admit that around administration of um, our voting process. But I hope that the federal government in its oversight will take steps thoughtfully, legally, accurately to help encourage and recommend appropriate safeguards, um, both to pr protect the integrity of our electoral process, but also to protect access to our electoral process equally for all um, for all citizens. Thank you for that, Deborah. And same question to you, Derek. If, if we think of our, our larger constitutional system, what, what role do you think is, is, is most appropriate for the federal government in the context of elections and voting? Yeah, I think it I think it ought to be a pretty cautious one. Um, we've seen Congress act pretty cautiously so far uh, throughout history. Um, perhaps I think a little too cautiously when it came to uh, minority voters and a reconstruction. Um, it, it took a, you know about 100 years to get between uh, the end of the Civil War and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, but in terms of other sort of day-to-day -day nuts and bolts administration of elections, um, I think it, it needs to be careful about how it goes about enacting one-size-fits-all policies. Um, we have a, a very diverse nation in terms of approaches to election systems, um, some jurisdictions where there's almost no early voting at all to some where everyone votes by mail in advance of the election, uh, some where uh, you are in jurisdictions with very reliable mail service and other places without uh, so there are, I think, very broad and diverse approaches to voting systems. And for the most part, secretaries of state in each state, and even more so, the county election officials are trying to do the right thing. They they don't want long lines. They don't want uh, a, a public that lacks uh, integrity or lacks the trust of the integrity of the process. Um, so before the federal government intervenes, I think a, a careful, slow approach before it steps in into this arena and enacts new legislation. Um, that said, I think it's definitely important, particularly thinking about cybersecurity threats, um, to be thinking very critically and holistically about what we can be doing uh, as a country to sort of protect the right to vote, both uh, for the confidence of the American people and the reliability of the outcomes. Well, thank you so much for that response. And, and, and again, I just want to give our heartfelt thanks to both uh, Deborah and Derek for their great work on our interactive constitution. It's the commitment of scholars to, 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 to tell these constitutional stories and, 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 and go clause by clause that uh, uh, makes the product what it is. So I just thank you both so much for the interactive constitution contribution and also for joining us today for We the People. So Derek, Deborah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nakanjaro Iannacci. The host of We the People is Jeffrey Rosen, who will return next week. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Jackie McDermott. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly.
bit.ly backslash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People in our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tom Donnelly.